begin reading in verse 29 and following. So if you're able to stand, I ask that you do that. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29, reads like this. Then he, that is Jacob, commanded them, his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy years days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all of his servants, the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you. So if you remember from, from last week, we concluded Jacob's words for each of his sons, finally with Benjamin. And he's now still interacting with his sons. He has words for his sons now, but these now come in the form of an instruction. As the ESV puts it, these are commands that he's giving to them, and they pertain to his own death and burial. And if you look at the deathbed accounts in Scripture, and there are many of them there. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ, this one gets the most ink. This, this one gets a heavy treatment, the death of Jacob. 
He is a prominent figure along with Joseph in the latter portion of Genesis. Therefore, some 20 verses are devoted to his death and burial. And there are many details in this passage. He tells him exactly where he wants to be buried. That he wants to be buried at the same burial place where his grandfather Abraham and and his father Isaac and their wives are at. He wants to be buried near Leah, not his beloved Rachel, who's buried in another place. And there's interesting things to talk about there. Then, then you have the whole embalming thing. Uh, not a typical uh, procedure for a man of Jacob's heritage. And you have the, the huge caravan of people that make their way to Canaan. And, and the, the mourning of the Egyptians there for 70 days, this, this foreign land where Jacob uh, had definitely must have made some sort of impact that they would respond with such affection, to have such an emotional response to his passing. These are, these are all interesting details, and, and they all merit exploration. And this is just one of the personal struggles that I have uh, when, when I'm given a passage like this that has a lot of content, a lot of details, unlike last week, which is basically one verse. So whenever I get this and I, I begin to, to work through it, the, the Word of God is so rich. You, you find out things that are very, very interesting, and you're like, ooh, I, I got to share that. Or, wow, there's a, there's a little textual nuance there. That, that, I didn't know that. Like, that, I need to share that with living water. Well, that's all fine and good if we had like an endless amount of time here. If you could preach a four-hour sermon. And some of these passages, I think that to, in order to give it even the, uh, a solid treatment, you would need that time. But we have less than that. We have roughly 40 minutes. So you, you got to kind of, you know, parse it down. Uh, there's time restraints. We all have uh, short attention spans, myself included. So what I want to do here today is I want to focus in on two concepts, two concepts that I think are just abundantly obvious. I think these things are the thrust of the text before us today. And they're not very popular subjects. They are death and grieving. I want to talk about death and grieving. And when I think about those those concepts, those things that are part of life, they're very uh, pastoral, I think. And, and this would be, a, I think, a perfect time for me to say something I say about every three or four years, and that is, I'm not a pastor. There, there's, there's four pastors on staff here at the church. I am not one of them. People will call me Pastor Mike, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm very honored that they would do that. I think it's a great compliment, and I take it as such, but it's just not true. Okay. I do some pastoral type things, so I kind of get it, but I'm not one. Okay. So, you know, when people call me Pastor Mike, it just it adds terrible confusion to an already confusing situation because we got two Italian guys on staff, both named Mike. We got Bongo and Leonzo. And if you call me Pastor Mike, when we already got a Pastor Mike, you can see the confusion that ensues. So uh, call me Mike, Mike B, or Bongo. I'm good with any one of those. Just don't do what one guy did and call me Father Mike, okay? I did correct that guy. I'm like, nah, no, we're not going to go there. So I won't bring it up again for another few years, uh, but I thought uh, I would say it here today. So moving on, let's talk about death. And I recognize there's no good transitions from this to that. But I tried, no good segues. So we're just going to plow ahead. The first point I want to make to you regarding death is that I think we need to embrace the conversation. We need to embrace the conversation. The Bible deals a lot with death. And if the Bible doesn't treat it as some sort of taboo subject that is out of bounds or off limits, then I don't think we should either. You know, in our, in our world uh, where we live, our society, we often, uh, when it comes to daily conversations, we opt for the light, fluffy things, right? You know our go-to moves, the weather and sports, right? I, I will bet anything that you have talked about the weather within the last hour. I have, I have. 
I've talked about both weather and sports in the last half hour. That's, that's how we do. That, these are our go-to moves. And it's, and it's so like, do we really need to say, burr, it's cold out there? Like, it's January. It's been this way since the dawn of time, right? When God sent the earth into orbit, at, right after he said, let there be light, he said, let it be cold in January, right? And the same is true for February, right? This is just filler stuff, right? Sports, we, I'm, I'm guilty as any guy or any females, not just guys, you know, I love, talk me some sports. What are we talking about now? Super Bowl, right? I talked about it this morning. Well, you know, in, in the talk shows and the, the you know, talk radio and everything, hours and hours are devoted to this. And I want to save you some time. I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to tell you right now. Next Sunday, Chiefs are going to win. Chiefs are going to win too many weapons. Too many weapons. Andy Reid is a mastermind. All right, the Bucks might keep it close because Brady's a good leader and he's clutch. But Chiefs go back to back. Brady's still the GOAT. And Mahomes still has a very bright future. There you go. I just summed up six hours of yakety yak on the, on the pregame show in six seconds, okay? You don't, you're not, we're all freed up now to talk about more important things in life, like death. And I'm not saying we gotta like it. We, who, who likes it? Who enjoys to talk about death? We don't. I'm not saying we gotta get all goth with it and be consumed with it, right? But think about this. What is at the center of the Christian faith? At the center of the Christian faith is a death. That cross right over there, that, that, that is an instrument, an ancient instrument of death. Jesus Christ. You ask, what's Christianity all about? Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It's right at the heart of what we believe. Many of you, perhaps, wear a cross around your neck. Again, an instrument of death, of, of crucifixion. And it'd be comparable to wear a pendant of an electric chair. So it's, it's central to, to this Christian faith. But we don't want to talk about the topic. It's like the big elephant in the room that we all want to pretend is not there. So we come up with all these euphemisms for death. Person has passed away. They, they've departed They've kicked the bucket. They're pushing up daisies. They've gone on to meet their maker. They've gone to the great beyond. All ways to talk about death without really talking about death. And every single person walking the planet knows this is what awaits them. They may not want to think about it. They may not want to talk about it, but they know. And hopefully you and I, Christian, we have a pretty good handle on death, uh, I think better than most because the scriptures speak on it and we're hopefully reading his word and being informed by the word of God. But for non-Christians, unbelievers, when it comes to death, they got a lot of questions. And you and I, dear Christian, we have some answers for them. We do. We need to embrace the conversation. And we come alongside these people who are struggling with the fear of death. And we say to them, as, as fellow mortal human beings, we say, can I tell you about a guy? He's from the town of Nazareth. And, and he had a friend. His name was Lazarus. And his friend died. And, and, and he wept over that. But then... He said these amazing words. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Mr. or Mrs. Unbeliever who's afraid of death, believe that? Do you believe this? And we need to declare this from the rooftops. This is good news. Death is... It is bad news. We can bring good news to bear on the situation and, and, and thunder out Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death. That is why you're dying, my friend. It is because of sin. But the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, in evangelism, there, there, there's many struggles. We're really hitting all of them. Talking about death, we don't like that. Evangelism, we don't like that either. We'll get to mourning and grieving later. But, you know, I like to talk evangelism. If you know me, that's kind of my thing. Director of outreach kind of comes with the job. You got, you got to kind of like it. But it's hard. It's hard. I struggle. People think I, oh, Mike, bold and, what? Did you know me? You obviously don't hang around me enough. I'm not. I'm, I walk out there with fear and trepidation every time I'm going to engage in one of these conversations. And one of the struggles in evangelism that, that is not just for me, but it's really, I bet you have it as well, is how do you get that conversation started? How do you go from things like weather and sports to deep, meaningful things like life and death and heaven and hell? How do you do it? Kind of seems like a hard left, doesn't it? That's, that's my experience. So when I began to study this, there was somebody who said, well, you know, a good conversation starter is to ask people, are you ready to die? And I'm not a fan of that. I, I'm not. I think that's a little too much, a little too early. Okay, I don't think it's particularly wise to roll up on somebody and be like, hey, are you ready to die? Like, that's, that's a little too much, I think. So people have refined it, and they, they, they go back to the drawing board, and they say, all right, well, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Better. But, but I refined it even more to something that I'm comfortable utilizing, that I, that I have asked people, and it hits the ear very differently switch a few words around, basically ask people, what do you think happens when someone dies? See, I, I remove them from the, the brunt of that right there. I'm just, I'm asking their theology. Give me your philosophy of death. And it kind of eases us into the conversation without getting so personal so quickly. And these are some of the things we talk about in the, in the E3 class. You know, because people are thinking about it and, and we're just asking, what, what do you think? Hey, somebody dies. What do you think happens to them? And what you will find if you utilize that in your conversations, people actually like to talk about this stuff. They do. I think people are tired of the mundane. They're tired of the weather talk. You can only break down sports so much and all the, the things that we chat about. Some people want to chop it up over meaty and exciting topics. And the reality is death it's a great segue to the gospel. It is. You know, it's a great avenue to get there, and we are gospel people, right? You're a gospel person, I hope. You're all about the gospel. Well, the death will help you get there. It's not pleasant, but, it, but it's, it's, it's important to get us to those important things that we are called to share as ambassadors for Christ. So my first point is death, let's embrace the conversation. My second point is when it comes to grieving, we ought to embrace the experience. See, the Bible has a lot to say about death, and because death and grief kind of go hand in hand, the Bible has a lot to say about grieving. What do we read here in our text? Let me revisit a couple of the verses. Genesis 49, 33 when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days, grieving, mourning. We continue on Genesis 50, verses 10 and 11. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. See, the Bible is filled with people who are grieving. We got the Jews grieving in our passage here today. We have the Egyptians grieving. And if you just continue in your Bible to read throughout, you'll see 
people that have grief present in their lives, like Samuel and David, Jonathan, Job, of course, Jeremiah, Daniel, Peter, Mary, many others. There's an entire book devoted to it. It's called Lamentations, which the word itself means an expression of grief. God himself grieves. We grieve. God grieves. Uh, people grieve for all sorts of things. You grieve all the time. For, at the drop of a hat, grief can, can set in. And, and, and it's not only a loss of a loved one. Sometimes it's, it's, you grieve over someone who is, who is uh, experiencing suffering. They haven't died, but they're suffering. Or someone who has suffered a crippling accident. We can grieve over the state of our world. We can grieve over our own sins. With so much to grieve over, we got to make sure we understand, what does it mean to grieve? What would be a good working definition? I, I like what one uh, man put it. He just, very simple, I thought it was good, got right to the heart of it. He said, grief is an expression of our hearts when someone or something we value has been taken from us. It is an expression of our hearts when someone or something we value has been taken from us from us. Sometimes within Christianity, with our emphasis on eternal life, and, and rightly so, rightly so, I think some have concluded somehow, some way that, that maybe Christians are exempt from grieving. You know, that, that somehow uh, it's not spiritual to grieve the death of a loved one, especially if that loved one had placed their faith in Christ. The, the thinking usually goes like this is, well, Christ has, has conquered death through his resurrection. Death has forever been abolished. And, and the death of, of, of the Christian ushers them into the presence of God. So if you're, if you're dearly departed has placed their faith in Jesus, they are there with him. Therefore, you ought to rejoice and not grieve. Well, in that factual and, and, and quite theological rhetoric, I think something is terribly wrong. We, we have not accounted for our humanity. I think it's a complete denial of who we are as human beings. And again, if you hold the position that it's inappropriate for a Christian to grieve, you have got to reckon with John chapter 11. I cited it earlier. Let, let's revisit it. This is the account of Lazarus, right? Jesus' friend, and, and his sisters, Mary, Mary and Martha. Mary runs out to see Jesus. We pick it up in verse 33. When Jesus saw her, that's Mary, he saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Notice he doesn't rebuke anyone for weeping. Instead, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have that very short verse there, verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus doesn't seek to dry anybody's eyes. He doesn't tell them just, hey, hang tight. I'm about to blow your mind. You're going to see a miracle very shortly. Dry your eye. It's not what he says. He enters into the grieving with tears of his own at the death of his friend, with the knowledge that he's going to, in a few short moments, utter those now famous words, Lazarus, come forth. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses because he is utterly human as we are. He, he enters into the full human experience, apart from sin, obviously, but part of that full human experience is to deal with things like grief. Jesus wept. To my knowledge, uh, we have nowhere in, in, in Scripture where we have the words, Jesus laughed. Now, do I think Jesus laughed? I bet he did. I, I, I'm almost positive that he did. I bet Jesus even told jokes. I bet Jesus was hilarious. And I don't mean that in any sort of sacrilegious way whatsoever. I say that with the utmost respect. But I got to think, he's at all these dinner parties. You know, there was, there's got to be moments of levity. 
you know, where he, he drops a joke with perfect comedic timing. I think he was fun to be around. And, and think about it, humor, where does it come from? It comes from God. He created it. It's not something we invented. You didn't decide to laugh. No one did. It's something that God, because it's a good gift, right? Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Don't you like to laugh? I do. It, it feels good to laugh. It is a good gift from our kind God. So next time you laugh, praise the Lord and thank him. He didn't have to do it. It could be possible we never laugh. No one knows anything of humor, anything funny. I don't want to live in that world. And I say this being fully aware of what Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus, that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. Yep, because we are complicated human beings. We're complex individuals, and our lives as humans include the full range of emotions. And Jesus was fully human. And there is a time and a place, the Bible calls it seasons, for things like laughing and mourning. It says so. Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We need to embrace the grieving experience. In Ecclesiastes, if you have not read Ecclesiastes, let me encourage you to open that up and take a look. It's my favorite book. Four chapters later, in Ecclesiastes 7, we read some very interesting words. Ecclesiastes, I, I like to think of it as like, it's like the change-up of the Bible, to, to use a baseball analogy. Pastor Steve Bateman will appreciate this. Certain books are like, you know, a fastball. Like Psalms, you pretty much know what's coming, kind of a fastball. Revelation, it's a curve, right? Ecclesiastes is a change-up. Gets you off balance. You're way out in front. You're thinking one thing, you know, to now, now because everything's a sports metaphor for me. It's like basketball. It's like getting crossed over. That's what Ecclesiastes does. You're leaning one way, phew, there you are. You're juked out of your gym shorts and ankles broken on the court. That, that's Ecclesiastes. It is great. And, and, and it's so counterintuitive, especially what I'm going to read for you here. It's so counterintuitive to our way of thinking. Check this out. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It just said there that the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We don't think like that. You kidding me? That's not, that's not the general consensus that we have. Ecclesiastes is just so different, but I think it's true. I do, I think it's true. Things like this, mourning and death, they lead us into something that is so vitally important, and it's wisdom. You know, when, I, when I'm having a good time laughing, you know, enjoying some comedy, I'm not learning anything. I'm, I'm having a good time, but it's during those moments of sadness and grief and somber reflection where I ponder life's greatest mysteries. And I ponder my own mortality. This will sound morbid, but I love funerals. I do. We have funerals here all the time. I, can I say I enjoy them? I don't know. I just said it. I enjoy them. I like a good funeral. I, I'm a sucker for the, uh, the part of the funeral. Not every funeral has this, but they'll show like a, um, a slideshow of the person who's passed away and, 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 and it's like pictures from their youth and set the music. I mean, that gets me every time. I'm a puddle on the floor, basically. And, and especially for people that I knew, you know, I met them when they were like in their 50s and 60s and 70s. I know them for like 20 years to see them as a child or to see them in their 20s. Just does something for my heart. So I love funerals. The family comes in, they're grieving. Of course they're grieving. And we can show love to them and we can serve them. 
And we can talk with them, and we can get tissues for them. We often have meals downstairs for them. You know, we get to play loving host to a family that is heartbroken. And you know who comes to funerals? The unchurched. For that event, they're churched. They're coming in, right? But they don't normally attend. Weddings and funerals, that's their experience. Maybe Christmas, Easter, right? They come in here, and if the, if the opportunity allows, if the Lord opens that door, we can have that great conversation with somebody who's never, they don't darken the doors of a church, but here they are. And you know what they're thinking about? They're thinking about their own mortality. You know they are. I think of it every time. I see a body right here, and I'm like, Mike, that's, that's going to be you. I'm going to be in that casket someday. It, whatever's going on in my life at that time kind of pales in comparison. It just gives me a fresh perspective. I'm like, yeah, that thing that I, I, I don't like that's happening, that's consuming me. It's like, yeah, let's kind of compare that to death, okay? Doesn't seem so bad now. And if it's a funeral here at Living Water and it's done by Pastor Mike or Pastor Ben or Pastor James or myself, you know what? They're going to hear the gospel. The gospel will go forth in the midst of all the grieving. And it's frankly exciting in the midst of sadness. So I'm not trying to be glib or uncaring in any way. Honestly, I hope you hear my heart on this. But I just think funerals are a great opportunity for us to minister to the brokenhearted and proclaim truth to hearts that are hopefully ready to receive it. Grieving forces us to look beyond the trite and happy things of this life and contemplate our own existence, our own mortality. It just gives you a fresh take. Just, it's a fresh perspective on your life and you can see things so much more clearly. So how should we grieve? How should we grieve? Let me give you three ways from our passage here that I think are present in the text here of how we should grieve. The first way is that we should grieve expressively. If you notice the first verse of chapter 50, it says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. That's grieving expressively. Some boys are raised with the mantra, real men don't cry. Again, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you're going to have a hard time holding that position when you look at the pages of Scripture. You're going to have a hard time squaring that with the Word of God. Because we looked at what? Jesus wept. Joseph. Joseph, we have covered numerous accounts. He's crying at every turn in the latter chapters of Genesis. And, and, and make no mistake, Joseph is no softy. Joseph ain't soft. You, you don't go through what he went through and not be some tough cat. He is. But yet he's emotional. Don't let the tears lead you into thinking that he's some fluff cake. He's not. Joseph's hard, but he's crying all the time. We see it here. Here's a cursory glance of just some of the men in Scripture who shed tears. Genesis 27, Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Genesis 45, Benjamin wept. 1 Samuel 20, David wept the most, it says. 1 Samuel 24, Saul lifted up his voice and wept. 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah wept bitterly. Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet. 2 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul wrote with, quote, many tears. Revelation 5, and I, that's the Apostle John, wept. Real men don't cry is not a biblical notion. One of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Vody Bauckham, I heard he was in the area like a couple days ago. I found out afterwards. I would love to go see him speak. Um, he, he's something else. He, he said this. Let me quote him. He goes, I hear from guys all the time. They say, I'm just not an emotional man. He says, that is a total lie. He's like, you're trying to feed that to me, he says. Here's what I know. When they're out on the golf course and they shank one into the woods, they don't stand there saying, I seem to have hit that one poorly. <laughs> or they show up for work one morning and their stuff is out on the sidewalk with a pink slip. They don't say, I sure did enjoy my tenure here. No, 
they get fired up. And I said just last weekend that something fires you up. We all get fired up over something. Sometimes it's Jesus. Sometimes it's something else, right? But when it comes to grief, we got to let it out. You got to, don't hold that in. You got to let that out. Cry, get, you know, the good cry. I, it's like I said, it, it feels good to laugh. I think it feels good to cry. You know, and I'm talking like that good, like the snot bubbles, you know what I'm saying? Like real, like crying. It's good. It's good. It's therapeutic. So Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. We need to grieve expressively. Before we get to the next two, uh, allow me to take a brief excursion here. I wanted to fit this in. That seemed like the right place to put it. You know, we're thinking about, you know, people expressing grief. What about the people who come alongside those who are grieving and they want to express their thoughts, their sentiments, their words to the one in the midst of the grieving process? What about that? Sentiments that, that are intended to be helpful, no doubt. I don't think anybody's malicious in this, but sometimes those words aren't so helpful. In, in preparation for this uh, sermon, I, I, I reached out to about six or seven people who, who I know uh, are grieving or recently were grieving, and, and hopefully, very politely and, and, and gently, I, I just simply asked them, hey, would you be okay to sit down with me and kind of Tell me how grief has, has been a reality in your life, the process, what you've gone through. And my hope was, yes, to get some insight into to grief from personal people. We all, you know, there's people in this room. I talked to some this morning. I know they're grieving. I tried to prepare them to say, this, here's what we're talking about. I just want, don't want you to be bum-rushed. Okay, but I thought it would be maybe therapeutic for them as well, and I, I think it was. I, I hope it was. Uh, but as we spoke numerous times uh, for a few of them, you know what came up is they said to me, here's what, what people came to them, uh, family, friends, acquaintances, in the midst of their grief, they said some things that were less than helpful. You know, and, and they were gracious, don't get me wrong, you know, uh, and they even said, you know, they, they mean well, they come from a good place, but they accomplish the opposite of what the person is hoping for. And I was fascinated by this, and they shared some of them with me. And I thought, well, let me do a Google search to see if somebody's kind of like compiled these words, good things to say to somebody who's grieving and not so good things. And just like everything else, it's out there on the internet. If you just know the right Google search terms, you can find it. I didn't have to search very far. It was grief.com, of all places, right? They had... 10 things you should say, 10 things you shouldn't say. And I found it very instructive, and I thought, let's just get really practical here. Let's just, I, I hope you want to be a good minister. You say, well, Mike, I'm not on staff at the church. I hope you, you, you don't have that view. You are a minister. Just, if I'm a minister, you're a minister, okay? We want to minister to people. I want to have the right words for people. I don't want to add to their pain. So, Let's, let's, let's get practical here, and I'll share these with you, and we'll start with the 10 things. They called it the 10 worst things to say to someone in grief, and, and, and these hit me hard, and these are corrected. We don't like to be corrected, but I, I was corrected here. I, I didn't say some of these word for word, but the sentiment, the, the idea was in there, and I was like, man, I, I think I might have hurt somebody with my words, so let me share them with you. So again, things not to say. Uh, at least she lived a long life. Many people die young. He is in a better place. She brought this on herself. That one, whew. The, the, there's a reason for everything. I think I've said that or something close to it. The, this one, just brace yourself. Uh, aren't you over him yet? He has been dead for a while now. Like, these people at grief.com, they must be hearing this. People, somebody must have said that. It made the list. You can have another child still. She was such a good person, God wanted her to be with him. I know how you feel. How often do we just kind of, all right, you're grieving. Hey, I know how you feel. Let me tell you about my grief. Not helpful, not helpful. 
She, she did what she came here to do, and it was her time to go. And finally, be strong. You know, they, they don't want to hear be strong. They're not strong. And one that was told to me personally, uh, so I'll add to the list one more, God still has a good plan for your life. So a lot could be said on each of those, and I'm, I know I'm just dropping and running, uh, but, you know, there, the, the, there's, there's something to learn in there. I really, I really think so. So what, what should you say? What are some of the good things to say to someone in grief? And, and, and see the difference between these two lists here. First one is, I am so sorry for your loss. I wish I had the right words. Just know that I care. I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to help in any way I can. You and your loved one will be in my thoughts and prayers. Uh, my favorite memory of your loved one is dot, dot, dot. I'm always just a phone call away. Just give them a hug. Don't say anything. Uh, we all need help at times like this. I'm here for you. Uh, I'm usually up early or late if you need anything. And lastly, to say nothing and just be with the person. So if I could sum up these, what I take from this is that, you know, if we're going to utter something to a person who's in the midst of grief, less is more. Less is more. Listen to them. Be present. Be supportive. Be loving. And again, uh, there's much more could be said about those. I think it would be fascinating to bring in a grief counselor to walk through them and kind of unpack those, why this one's good, why this one's not so good. Uh, but I thought that would be uh, helpful for us. So one, we should grieve expressively. Two, we should grieve extensively. Expect to grieve extensively. And think about it. Let me hearken back to what I just said. What do you think is going on with some of those insensitive comments that are being said? I think what people are trying to do is fix your grief. They're trying to fix it. See, if you have a problem, I want to try to fix it, right? I mean, not all the time. Sometimes I don't care. I mean, can I be honest? Oh, I'm just being real. Sometimes it's like, hey, you work through it, man. I, maybe that was too real. Sorry. Somebody laughed very loud. I'm just saying, I'm not going to be like, I always care. I'd be like, all right, man, suck it up, man. Get through it. I mean, not with the death of a, a loved one, all right? Uh, let me just, I will strike that for the 11 a.m. service. <laughs> I, sometimes, this is such a dangerous thing. You get up here and start talking to people. But just generally speaking, if someone's in need, don't you want to meet the need? If they're sad, you want to cheer them up. I, I do. I mean, unless you think horribly of me, I do. I want to put a smile on somebody's face who's hurting. I want to make them feel better. But the reality is with deep grief, there's just no fixing it. There isn't. You can't do it. I can't do it. I think, but that's what we're trying to do when we say those things. We want to fix it right there. Our words. I'm going to have the words for them, and they're going to just instantly feel better. Sometimes the grief is so deep you can't do it. You can't. See, grief is not an obstacle to get around or, or something to avoid or blow off. You have got to go through it. You, you, you can't circumvent it. You've got to go through it, and it takes time. It takes time. So expect to grieve extensively. You can't speed through it. You, you, you can't speed it up. And everybody's on a different time frame because we're all different people, and we grieve very differently. And so I think if our comments are an attempt to, to, to hurry the process up and just cheer them up, probably not wise. I was talking to a young woman, and she shared, shared something extremely insightful. And I said, I, I said, do I have your permission to quote you? I'm not going to tell you who said it, but uh, this, was, this was a truth bomb that she dropped on me. Check this out. She said, people don't like to be uncomfortable. They don't like to feel sadness. And if they're around you and you're grieving and sad, that makes them uncomfortable and so they want to fix your situation so they don't have to feel the uncomfortable sadness. Wow, that's, that is crazy insightful. And I think that's where the place some of these unhelpful expressions are coming from. 
You're trying to fix what can't be fixed, at least not by you. Those who are grieving need time, and that's why I say people ought to expect to grieve extensively. Look at the length of time from Jacob's death to his burial. 40 days to embalm the body. Then there was 70 days where the Egyptians are weeping. And granted, there's some overlap here. I recognize that. Uh, Joseph has to get approval from Pharaoh uh, to, to, to make the trek to Canaan. That takes time, right? The commentators estimate that was approximately a three-week journey. And then there's seven more days of, of mourning there at the burial. So all in all, again, this is not days. This isn't even weeks. This is months. Months have gone by. And there's grieving throughout. And then who's to say that once Jacob's in the ground that the grieving is over? No, the grieving would continue on for who knows how long. And think about this too. Jacob's death, it didn't come as some sort of sudden shock. There, there was a long buildup. Just look at the preaching. We, you know, granted we had Christmas and stuff, but we've been in Genesis 49 with all of his words to the various sons since like October. I mean, this is, there's, he's had a chance to address each of his sons, uh, to, to, to give them parting words of wisdom. There's a time for hugs and kisses. He can give now instructions on where he wants to be buried, all of that. Some families don't get that opportunity. That was a luxury that was afforded to Jacob and his family. And some people are grieving the loss of a loved one who doesn't, doesn't die at the ripe old age of whatever, whatever that is. They lose somebody who is in the prime of their life. Or they lose someone who was very young. And I got to think that that's going to affect the depth and the duration of the grief that that family feels. So we should grieve expressively, we should grieve extensively, and lastly, we should grieve, I wanted to say expectantly to keep with the alliteration, but that's not the right word. The right word is to grieve faithfully. I don't think you can preach a, a sermon on grief and not at least cite 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It says, yes, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those without hope. Did Jacob have hope? Yeah, he sure did. Jacob, he had, he had hope that we could see in his own life. We, if you follow the, the Genesis narrative, what do we see in the latter portions of Jacob's life? He starts out as kind of this trickster. He's, 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 not so, he's just not behaving properly. And we see God working in his life and a transformation taking place where he's this godly patriarch by the time we reach this point in Genesis. So yeah, he had hope. And we also see the hope that he had in the very first verse that we looked at, which was Genesis 49, 29. Then he, Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Think of that. I am, I am to be gathered to my people. Future tense. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. See that phrase, to be gathered to my people? It's not a mere euphemism for death. He's not just saying, I'm going to die. That, there's more going on than that. And he's not just saying, I want to be gathered to my people by having my bones buried near my, my fathers and their wives and Leah. That, that's, you know, th th that's part of it because that is the, the land of promise, right? That was the land promised to them. And so it's an expression of faith from Jacob that that day would come. Jacob doesn't see it, but he has a faithful expectation that God is gonna make good on the promise that he made. And Jacob is faithfully expressing hope of life after death. See, upon his death, that would be the occasion that would usher him into reunion with his departed family members. You know how I know that? Verse 33 proves it. Check it out. Jacob breathed his last and was gathered, past tense, to his people. He, he dies, and it's then, that's when he's gathered. His bones are still there in Egypt, right? You, you compare that with verse 29. I am to be gathered to my people, and then he dies, and he was gathered. 
to his people. There's, a, there's the reunion right there. Matthew 22 in the New Testament, and as for the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Notice what he doesn't say. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac and Jacob. No, he was and is and forever will be their God. Now and forever. See, death is not a dead end. That's not the end. Despite what the atheist will tell you. They'll say with all conviction, the word of God says otherwise. Death actually opens up to us all of eternity. That, that's the entryway to the, to the rest of your, your life. It's not the end. Look at the life of Jesus. Yes, Jesus died. And there was mourning and there was grieving, but that's not where his story ended. There were tears shed. But three days later, death could not hold him. He was he risen from the grave, forever conquering death. And for those of us who have turned from our sinful ways and turned to this Jesus Christ, death isn't the end for you either. Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he yet live again? The answer is an emphatic yes. Romans 6 says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That was the hope for Jacob, and that is the hope for you and me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to remember what we looked at here today, that death is a reality. It's a reality in our fallen world. It's unpleasant and it is hard. Lord, we need to be prepared ourselves. Your word teaches in the ninth chapter of Hebrews that it is appointed for us to die once, but then face judgment. I hope we are ready. And, and if those of us who are ready, that we would then engage with others. Because earlier in that book of Hebrews, it says that people are slaves to the fear of death. And Lord, you've given us answers. We have words of hope. And there's only one hope for this world, and it is you. And so when we grieve, I pray that we grieve hopefully, we grieve faithfully, and that we are good ministers to share that hope with others so that they might know you, the one true and living God and put their trust in you as Lord, as Savior, and as Comforter in times of grief. Amen.